You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dan Stewie, the Chief of Military Science and Training in the Department of Military Instruction here at West Point. Dan, thanks for being on The Spear. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Start off, how'd you wind up in the Army? Started right off with an um. <laughs> Started off wanting to be a Marine, which maybe you might be able to appreciate, um, and I uh, was raised for the good portion of my life um, by my mom. My dad was still in the picture, but mom dated a Marine in Vietnam, Tim Dwyer. Never forget him. Um, and she said, as long as you're under this roof, you'll never be uh, a United States Marine. So after a little soul searching and uh, her forcing me to school, I said, uh, let me see if I could try something that would lead me into the FBI. My grandfather was a Cleveland cop for 33 years, said, uh, let me take you to my neighbor who was in the Cleveland FBI. And this gentleman, I met him, said, you got two choices. You can be an accountant or an army officer. And that stuck with me when I went to school because you'd never think those little orientation programs mean anything, but sure enough, there was an ad for army ROTC. And there I am now alone at school, uh, able to make some decisions. And I said, let me see if I could try this. Showed up, signed in for my first class. A couple classes later, they offer you that scholarship. Called dad back who was paying for school. And he said, scholarship would be really good because I don't know how we're going to afford the next three years. Uh, signed up, fast forward, uh, here I am. At ROTC... Pre-global war on terror, you go through the basic pipeline, you branch infantry. What was your pipeline after commissioning? After commissioning, um, so to put a little bit more, even more context in it, it was it was still in school uh, when we when 9/11 went off. I was in uh, I was on the four and a half year program, um, needed a little bit extra time, and so I was dating my current wife at the time. Towers go down, we get attacked. Um, before that, knew I wanted to be an infantryman. Um, was not guaranteed it yet, but I wanted to be an infantryman. And the advice I'd received from uh, an incredible amount of NCOs, senior cadets and officers there was, hey, Korea is where you want to go first. Fast forward, 9-11 goes. Um, Korea was not the place to go then. Um, if you wanted to, to to get to the, no pun intended, tip of the spear, somebody said, see if you can get to the 101st. Um, said, okay, put that in as my preferences. Uh, got lucky, moved on um, to Fort Benning, Georgia for the, at the time was called IOBC, the Infantry Officer Basic Course, has now changed. And started my basic course, uh, which was a good course, but also preparation for ranger school. Mm-hmm. I did not pass ranger school. My friends helped me pass ranger school. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the the things I learned there as it relates to leadership and then, like I said, teamwork, because they're the ones that helped me pass. 
right after ranger school, a um, little bloated, a little scarred, and into a wedding real fast with uh, uh, my wife. And then we shot down to Fort Campbell, Kentucky in a U-Haul and a Nissan pickup truck. Got a small condominium there, and then just a few weeks later on a plane to Iraq. So you show up at Fort Campbell. This is late 2002? Um, we got married at the end of this. I graduated, never forget, because I graduated Ranger School in um, Thanksgiving break of 2002. And so we didn't show up to Fort Campbell until right after Christmas. So let's just call it early 03, January 03. What was the mood at Fort Campbell at the time? We're going. Just everybody ready. Maps of Iraq all over, you know, large blow up maps of Iraq. Uh, I remember vividly not having, and, and I, I kind of got the memory, the Ted Lasso memory of a goldfish. So some things are sketchy, but first walked into 3502. That's what my orders were for, 3rd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment, the Widowmakers. The look on my wife's face when I came home is she's prepping me to go overseas. And I said, honey, we got our unit. And I said, let me dig into it. It's called the Widowmakers. And she immediately just turned different colors of white and said, well, this is not going to be the experience I was hoping for. Had a sign-in 40 week and come back and the, believe it was the S1, says, we screwed up, you're actually going to 2502, second battalion. So they walked me across the street um, and I signed into 2502 and got introduced to the, the company commander, XO, and right into the platoon. So you went right into a line platoon in a battalion that is preparing to deploy. Yes. What were the first 48 hours like? for Lieutenant Dan Stewie in 2nd of the 502nd. My timing might be a little off, but I remember we were waiting for the order um, to get signed that we would go, even though it was just anticipated. As soon as that started, as soon as the order was signed, it was all things railheaded operations and packing up containers. So it was immediately ushered to the um, Campbell Railhead Operations Facility, the Croft, another just vivid memory, because it was uh, at night in January and weather was absolutely miserable raining sideways uh, and starting to freeze. And I meet my company commander at the time, um, and he introduces me to uh, actually the Bravo Company First Sergeant and says, all right, Stewie, you're the OIC. This is uh, Renegade 7. Uh, you will work with him and continue rail operations. Not having a clue what any of that was, um, other than there was a train, a few trains there. Commander leaves, and about 60 minutes later, a Humvee starts f sliding off the rail car, uh, luckily it did not slide all the way off and the first sergeant came to me and said, sir, my recommendation is we cancel rail operations for this evening. New lieutenant says, uh, roger that first sergeant. That sounds like a great idea. Let's make that decision. And, uh, I learned real quick about the quality of non-commissioned officers that existed and arguably all the 101st at the time. And, and they were in a unique, the, the post was in a unique spot because third brigade 101st had already been in Afghanistan. They went over there relatively soon after the initial, uh, Beijing to Afghanistan. But now the entire 101st, to include those um, soldiers that were just the entire unit that was just in Afghanistan, was now heading out. Um, so we always had a bit of uh, interesting culture as you had two brigades, two infantry brigades excited to get into the fight. One 50-50, tired from just coming out of the fight and going right back into it. It was specifically different from what I would think of when I went back to Iraq the second time with the same unit. In other words, January 2000, February 2003, everybody ready to go fight, excited to go fight. And then fast forward about 24 months later, once we'd redeployed or actually a little bit longer, the new soldiers were ready to go, the vets not so much. So it was a really unique experience to see the two differences and going back to the same, um, same location to fight. That first night there on the railhead, it's freezing, you're a lieutenant, you've been given the mission to load this train. What's going through your head as you're making the call to the boss going, hey, sir, 
we might need to stop. Uh, the first thing I thought about is I'd like to start dipping Copenhagen again, but I still held off for a little bit of time because I had to quit that from Ranger School. Um, but I immediately realized that there will be decisions that I'm going to be making in the real near future that I may not have the entire picture on, um, and that's just part of our duty. It's part of the things. It's part of the the duties and responsibilities of a lieutenant, no matter if you're one day, two days into the job, or you're at the tail end of your platoon leader time. You've got this experience now at the railhead. But you're getting on a plane. You've got weeks, maybe? What did you do in that time to establish relationships with your NCOs and your... So I'll start with the time frame. We had uh, still a few weeks left in the bitter cold of central Kentucky and Tennessee. Small arms ranges, PT, uh, very basic, really focused on loading containers and drawing all of our... Um, our chemical gear, our seaburn gear. Um, but the platoon sergeant was an interesting aspect because you get taught through your years of whether ROTC or even at the academy about your non-commissioned officers, how you listen to them, trust your platoon sergeant, and, and you hope that you're going to have a great relationship. And my first introduction to my platoon sergeant was that, hey, sir, good to meet you. I'm retiring in about a few weeks, so won't be going with you. Don't know who's replacing me. Good luck. Um, just it, He was clearly not focused. Get the next platoon sergeant, I think about two weeks before we leave, and Going, going a little ahead of the story, um, by the time, so we hit Kuwait, you know, flight up to Missoula, and that was the time that I relieved the second platoon sergeant. Luckily, I got the third one, um, a guy by the name of Mark Berrialt that I served with for another 10 months who I still talk to to this day, and uh, I could probably do an entire separate podcast on the warrior and leader that that man is. So that's the that's the platoon sergeant piece and the kind of the train-up piece. As far as the family, um, as we showed up to Fort Campbell, um, I was currently doing dealing with uh, a no-pay due on my uh, LES because uh, my pay was screwed up in ranger school. So as I'm trying to prepare my wife for me to leave her alone, uh, as she's searching for a job also with no current income, the environment was interesting. But we get the call uh, to come in, <clears throat> meet behind the company. I remember her dropping me off in her little Subaru, and uh, I made up in my mind right there it'd be the last time I saw her because it was just that we didn't know what we were walking into. Um, we expected a lot of chemical and enemy contact from uh, Iraq, and so to me, that was it. And it's what we signed up for, and maybe I could make that mental break. Um, walked up, and the first person I see in the platoon is specialist saw gunner, specialist John Furman. He looks at me, and he, he, uh, he goes, sir, you're looking a little rough. And I said, well, this isn't the impression I want to make before we get on a plane. So I just flashed him a smile, and I said, no, let's let's get going. And he said, you'll probably need this. And he hands me a five-can roll of Copenhagen long cut. And I hadn't used anything since ranger school because it wasn't authorized at the time, and it was all downhill from there in terms of uh, the Army's tobacco and nicotine addiction. But that little handshake and, and, and smile between the two of us reset the tone for the platoon, and it was... It was still tense, but all business, um, and still just candidly felt like crap until the wheels went up on that plane. And our platoon got super lucky. I'll never forget just to volunteer for anything because we got uh, asked to do baggage detail. We raised our hands and loaded all the bags onto the bottom of that. I think it was probably Atlas Air, and uh, it, maybe it wasn't because we got the gift of first class, and I've never flown first class other than our time from Fort Campbell's airfield into somewhere in Europe and then into Kuwait. When you landed in Kuwait, what was the mood? What was the preparation? And how long were you there before 
you cross the border. Um, pure chaos. Literally landed in the NCO that greeted us, had the old sun, wind, and dust goggles strapped to his face as this it wasn't one of the ultra treacherous sandstorms, but just blowing miserable heat even uh, in February. Um, and then we had a few weeks sleeping in a tent, um, no cots to start, and, and um, not much communication. I remember a few, uh, a few phones and then a computer or two to send an email. And we were focused on glass house training drills, a couple of battle drills, um, and then in between that, catching desert reptiles to keep us entertained. Um, but it was really just your final preparations, the, the finally something that I felt like I expected. It was we got our new maps, started getting potential mission briefs. Um, with constant, though, constant react and direct fire. There was scuds continuously, um, gave you a whole new respect for the air defense artillery uh, as, as there was quite a few blown up overhead. And then it got real tense when there was a, um, you know, the, the first direct fire I ever heard was actually a um, soldier in a separate brigade that threw a few frags into a, an unfortunately famous event, killed a few American soldiers, um, soldiers and leaders. And that's when it started to make it all real for us. Um, and it, it, I'd noticed the intensity, uh, the focus of the platoon picked up to include myself because uh, candidly, I was just a little lethargic. We didn't even know truly if we'd go across. And then the preparatory strategic fire started going um, as we were actually, I think, busing out to, not busing, but LMTV out to a range that uh, the air war, if you will, had kicked off. And so we knew we were, we were short behind that. As the air war kicks off, do you wind up receiving your vehicles? Have you already received them? And you know, what was the brief and guidance you got from your company commander about how to keep the soldiers engaged and ready to go? The first mission we had was rather interesting um, and just useless uh, in hindsight. Uh, we, myself and uh, second platoon, uh, out of Charlie Company. We were tasked to go establish two attack positions on the border of Kuwait and Iraq and secure 3rd Brigade's convoy before they cross the berm. So we, our brigade, our entire brigade was going by air. I remember 3rd Brigade, if you recall, that's the ones that were just coming back from Afghanistan would go via ground assault convoy. So there we are, two rifle platoons, a company CP digging into the sand in Kuwait, two standard fighting positions for a few days, quite a few days, securing a brigade's worth of wheeled combat power. So the most we had, we always joked, was a 240. Um, you know, a couple 240s within the platoon, but there you got 50 cals, Mark 19s rolling around in the brigade, and we would just joke, they were, we're here to secure you, boys. Don't worry about it. But by the way, as we develop this reactive contact plan, we're going to integrate you. So it was comical and then got scary real fast. Um, remember my company commander departing, he had a non-tactical vehicle. We had, you know, just a LMTV that would, take us take us if we needed to go somewhere but we're there for a few days and he had a little non-tactical vehicle he takes off staff sergeant shaw and myself begin walking the platoon perimeter of our in the daylight conditions of our little attack position terry if memory serves me right and above overhead you hear one black you know one explosion followed by a second explosion you can see the smoke rings we both kind of look up and everybody kind of looks at each other like well i think that one got knocked out of the sky so we're safe and then like a Hollywood movie of, you know, dust trail vehicle. We see that non-tactical vehicle come racing back and out pops my company commander in full mop gear to include um, mask and gloves and he gives the hand arm signal for gas, gas, gas. And a metallic taste immediately took over my, you know, like I just remember tasting metal and I think that may have just been fear. And the unfortunate thing was I tried to give the command for gas, gas, gas. Luckily the army taught me hand and arm signals. So I gave that, but the beauty was I looked over and I see Staff Sergeant Shaw one of the best squad leaders I was able to serve with. He was cool, calm, yelling, and get everybody into uniform. 
So if I could take a quick pause here, I want to go back to something I said earlier about the receiving our chemical gear for a lesson learned as a, as a new lieutenant in the NCOs. When I got my chemical gear at Fort Campbell, comes in a nice bag, it's all sealed, the platoon sergeant, my new one, the one that I went into Iraq with, says, hey, sir, we got you, it's checked, it's inspected, it's good to go. As everybody's donning the rest of their chemical gear, I go run into the platoon CP, which is, you know, it wasn't a CP, it was just my RTO, my platoon sergeant, and a few pieces, a few classes of supply. My platoon sergeant was in the fetal position, um, I don't know if he was crying, but he was, he was, you know, just fear kind of overtook him. And I go to start putting the rest of my gear on, and I notice there's no gloves in my bag. And there's still soldiers putting their stuff on frantically. Um, we still think that there's a chemical threat. And I look at my hands, and I go, well, I'm going home without hands if this is something. And I begin to aggressively yell at my platoon sergeant for, you know, me trusting him, which was the wrong answer. It was my failure to inspect my own gear in hindsight. Um, so it taught me real quickly about checking but verifying and what things actually matter. Wonderfully enough, that was not a chemical round. It was intercepted as well. Um, we got the all clear after our 74 Delta, that Seaburn NCO. I tell you, that, that Seaburn NCO on a company, he gets, uh, he takes a lot of, a lot of razzing, a lot of jokes, until you think there's a chemical threat. And he became the, the champion of the company at the time. So we get the all clear, and then we prepped, prepped to go uh, over the border uh, via air assault. The air assault across the border. What's going through your head as you're approaching those helicopters and smelling that JP-8? So it was this march of death from a staging area um, to the actual airfield. Uh, I don't remember how long, but it may have only been a few kilometers. And it was the first time I thought I knew what a basic load was in ranger school um, until you actually get all the live rounds to include your 240 rounds, your 762, to include your javelins uh, for, your, for your close combat missile teams. And <laughs> as we, we put our rucksacks on, and mind you, we had just fielded the mollies. Um, we had the Alice packs before that. And... The way that we put on our mollies with our um, assault pack strapped to the top of it, with everybody with an extra 60 millimeter mortar round, with extra batteries for your ASIPs, um, with extra signal flares. There were very few soldiers that could stand up on their own. <laughs> so it was a, a three, a two-man lift to pull one soldier up. And as we walked, uh, and I think the sun was coming up, there were fallouts before we even got on the aircraft. And I was like, all I could think about was this is not going to go well. And it was seats out. I flew in a UH-60 with uh, another good friend of mine to this day, Sergeant Brian Burns, third squad leader. And uh, he just had this big smile across his face the entire time as he was picking soldiers up, yelling at them to get them on the aircraft. And as I looked at him, he was kind of the platoon comedian. And he's smiling. I realized, no, maybe we are going to be all right. And it's amazing that smiling when it sucks can change the tone of any situation. Uh, and that's something I've kept with me to this day. So Burns and I get on this bird, um, this UH-60, again, seats out, and we were gear first, soldier second. And so I remember not being able to see anything as my face was smashed up against the top of a UH-60. Um, we had not loaded rounds into our weapons yet. I had a hydraulic hose across my face, and I just could only think that, man, as soon as we take any contact, we're screwed. So I didn't know SOP for this aviation unit was as soon as they got up in the air on the plane, uh, the door gunners immediately fired another test fire. So I think we're getting shot at immediately. Luckily, we weren't. It was just a test fire, but nobody had any comms within the aircraft. We land at the first FARP, um, and I think we were on our way to Najaf, but we get out the FARP, uh, lock and load, fuel up, and then into Najaf. As you're getting in towards Najaf, what's your mission? I can't even remember. Um exactly what my task and purpose was. And I do remember receiving the brief from the commander, knew what we had to do. But the the overarching mission for us was 
really the combined arms fight we still teach today. In other words, big picture, third ID was in front, Bradley's in tanks, clearing through certain objectives, bypassing most of the urban areas. We would go into the urban areas, um, clear out any remaining enemy, cache what, um, uh, collect any weapons and equipment we could to cache those and destroy those, and just kept moving north at a arguably relatively rapid pace, um, mostly via air, and then uh, acquired Iraqi wheeled vehicles um, for the next few months. And it was to go back, our task was typically just clear, and the purpose was to prevent any more enemy uh, contact, either against follow-on forces or, or against uh, adjacent units. After Najaf, where did your battalion go? Candidly, I can't remember, and I did a terrible job of journaling it, but the next key event that I can recall was we were in the Al-Kufa soda factory, and it's because you remember being able to get your hands on some delicious, warm Iraqi cola. We hydrated with a few of those, and then the big one was Karbala was coming up next. And the reason I remember that is we're all excited to fly into Karbala. And there was a few combat patrols weaved in and out of there as we would stay for anywhere, you know, maybe 24, 36, even a little bit longer and patrol bases. But our platoon was not the one that would get to air assault in the Karbala. And I came back, had to dress the platoon, and you know, there's war fighters get really upset when they don't get to do the fun stuff. I said, all right, sir, so what's our mission? I said, we will ground assault into a, and establish a link-up point for the rest of the company who's coming in by. And again, not excited about that. We wanted to fly in. So we drive out, um, and we get to the outskirts of Karbala. It's just desert, desert, desert city. And so we've got some standoff from the cities. Nothing appeared to be going on. Company XO was with me. He said, where are you going to? I show him on the map. I use a water tower. I said, it's right there. That's where I'm going to go. And he looks at me. He goes, no, that's wrong. And I look back at the map, and I go, it's not wrong. I know exactly where I'm going. And as I turn around to verify with him again, he's gone. So my confidence level starts to dwindle. Sure enough, we move out. No contact is made, and I... Um, I'm running out of time before the first lift is supposed to come in, but I need to establish that link-up point for the company. And so I halt the platoon. I'm in the kind of middle of a you know, platoon column, squad column, fire team wedges. We end up halting in a smoldering, burning trash pit full of hypodermic needles and all sorts of trash. Um, so again, not, not thinking I'm in the great good graces of the platoon, but I don't have time to move. So we hold up there, pull security, and I turn around as you hear the rotors coming. And the first thing was the Apaches. And I'd never seen... Um, arguably a brigades or more worth of Apaches at the time with OH-58s in tow, uh, Kiowa warriors, setting the conditions for an objective. So they begin firing all, I felt like they fired everything they had on board into the city, into some key targets. And then right behind them is the UH-60s and the CH-47s. The company lands, link up with the company commander. He gives me the thumbs up and we just move the platoons online and begin clearing. Um, we met minimal direct fire contact. Um, I should say sporadic uh, direct fire contact as we moved through. Third battalion, uh, the Widowmakers were in quite a fight, um, but we were generally online. So who knows? Still, I don't know why they were the ones encountering the bigger fight. We cleared Karbala um, with, with a high rate of success, minimal to maybe even zero U.S. casualties. There was none from our uh, battalion at the time. And then I think our next move, if my timeline is right, I felt like we went to Baghdad after that. When those 60s and the 47s are landing, had you figured out where you were other than in this burning trash dump? Or was that water tower the wrong spot? So we were in the correct spot, thank God. Um, and to, to the company's prep. I mean, we, we did have just like we, just like we were taught, you know, I do remember sitting there going, this army stuff kind of works um, because we had planned out our, our limit of advance for the company with phase lines in between 
was able to hear uh, eavesdrop over the FM radio to where the other companies uh, were in regards to our frontline trace. And everything went too smooth, in my opinion. It did. I mean, it, it's when you plan for success and it happens, uh, that's a good thing. So we were able to maintain great awareness of the, the fight as we moved further north into the city. The rest of the company came in, or the rest of the battalion came in, in aircraft. But you drove there. You didn't cross the Berman vehicles. Where did you pick up these vehicles, and what were they? They were equivalent, an Iraqi equivalent to our LMTVs, and uh, learned real fast in the the fight that we were in. Um, you can only control what you can control, and you only move with what you've got until you get into the country and clear it. So we definitely used, uh, I can't even think of the amount, but I know we used quite a few Iraqi vehicles. We started to eat off the local economy at, at that time because um, there was, whether it was somebody, uh, whether it was a Iraqi national offering food as a thanks or, or cooking to try to make a few American dollars, if, if we had any, or just barter. So I think it may have been Baghdad, but logistics, you'd always get told that that will stall a fight, but you don't really worry about it as an infantry platoon leader. I learned real quick that smart NCOs can really help out the platoon because when we would get our MRE drop, remember the XO coming and saying, it's a two MRE per day. I look at him and I go, dude, that was like ranger school rations. We're the U.S. Army. We're invading a country. Can't we get more than two meals as we as we walk with all of our kit? Um, and he said, it's all we're getting, two meals a day, and then hot, hot water out of a big black water blivet. So Staff Sergeant Dodier uh, walked out uh, of the platoon patrol base in Baghdad and came back with about 12 chickens live. He was a, he was a Texan um, down south on the border. And he proceeds to snap the heads off of all those chickens as Specialist Williams is making a fire. Uh, and we got, you know, 33% security. And we ate whatever we could get our hands on because two MREs a day was, was candidly not enough to with the amount of walking in the loads that we were carrying and then... Um, uh, you know, 24-hour operations. As your platoon enters Baghdad, what was going through your head as a platoon leader and what was kind of the general attitude of the troops? <laughs> Morale was extremely high, especially in Baghdad, because I think we stayed there for about a week, if not longer, um, and gave us a real good chance to refit. It was our first chance to, I remember finding a water hose, um, and that's what we used to, to clean ourselves. We hadn't had anything to, to conduct field hygiene with other than wet wipes that were carried with us. So we got a chance to clean up, um, with, with cold running water. It was glorious. Um, we started to get our first um, Stars and Stripes hard copies. It was print-offs from, the, I think, maybe from the battalion CP, uh, but with some news. I remember reading things from Secretary Rumsfeld, and so that was our first connection with the outside world, and we were able to communicate success to the troops. So there was a, a high level of, of morale in Baghdad, especially, especially when that first mail package came in. Those first few days in Baghdad... Was the city restive or was the city quiet? You know, kind of what was what was going on in the, the former enemy's capital? I don't know what occurred in Baghdad prior to our unit showing up, but our enemy contact was relatively low. I remember a few sporadic small arms engagements um, when we were in our patrol bases, but we we continued reconnaissance patrols around our area to gather information and figure out what was next because we just didn't know until that mission dropped. What was next? Uh, next that I recall was there was a couple other um, cities that I, I know we cleared. Uh, I 
frankly can't remember the names of anymore. Uh, I, was, I was just focused on, uh, I was very myopic and just worried about what the task and purpose was of the platoon. And, and in hindsight, that's probably fine. That's what I was uh, tasked to do. The next major move, though, was a combination of um, ground assault north uh, with more acquired vehicles, uh, as well as getting to a pickup zone, and then we flew into Missoula. Um, and then Missoula was where we stayed until the, the end of that 12-month deployment. Um, so rough math, March crossed the border. I think it was May, end April, May-ish, six to eight weeks. I think it was maybe closer to six weeks that we get to Missoula, clear up through a city block, and we arrive at the Missoula Hotel. And at the time, um, I remember staring at the Battalion XO. Uh, I, was, I was behind my company commander looking at this, at one time, probably five-star hotel. And the uh, Battalion XO Major Tom Kunk looks and he goes, well, I got your next patrol base. Might be here for a while. It's a hotel. And we thought this was the greatest thing in the world. Until we got in it and realized that it had been abandoned for the past six weeks and it was just full of human feces and, and pilfered and uh the next few days was a combination of security and, and sanitizing that um, as we established, for lack of better terms, our home uh, for the foreseeable future. So with no turndown service at the, the Mosul Hotel, what was the city like when you got there? Big difference from Baghdad to Mosul because um, not a lot of civilian population remained in Baghdad. There was obviously some, but Missoul was extremely welcoming. Other than a few markets um, where there was illegal activity, you could tell that they weren't excited to see uniformed service members. The majority of the city of Missoul was happy to see us that far north. And um, the, the, there was remnants of the Kurdish military or even paramilitary probably up there as well. Uh, friendly, some handshakes, and I just recall seeing them. They had been fighting in there and then they moved on as the 101st really occupied uh, that entire city. How long did Mosul, while you were there, stay supportive? Till July, in my mind, uh, till July 23rd. And uh, the only reason I say that is from a, you know personal experience. That was when we had our first, our platoon had our first IED. What happened with that IED on July 23rd? So context to it, leading up to that IED, um, we had still been in an environment where we're establishing security, experiencing small arms fire, um, and we got ourselves into a rotation, ourselves being the company of a security platoon, because uh, you'd secure the hotel as well as a, a three-letter agency compound right down on the river that was part of our one task. Another platoon would be patrolling within the company. And then the other platoon was, was on refit, but then we started to, we, we had no idea when we were redeploying the rumor mill. People thought it'd be six months, 12 months. It was actually just pure mental hell as we tried to war game that because there was no predictability to it. But then training picked up, which was really a, in my junior mind at that time, if we're training here, why the hell not go home? So as I wrestled with that, uh, I got told today there's an M4 range that's been established on the eastern side of, uh, western side of Missoula, out in the open area. And you're going to go out, and there'd been some soldiers throughout the division, or excuse me, yeah, throughout the division that had gone out and started re-zeroing their weapons, keeping our skills sharp. Openly wasn't a fan of this because there were still missions to be done. We were still gathering information, but Roger will go do that. So here I'm the patrol leader in charge of getting out to this range uh, with some other um, parts of the company, some other soldiers that were able to go out and shoot, trying to wipe away the frustration from my face 
to go train while we're still, in my mind, in combat operations. But in hindsight, that is counterinsurgency, which is what we're transitioning into. So the transportation at the time, there wasn't an FSC. You know, you had your support platoon picks us up. Um, the support platoon picks us up. I was in the Humvee with my platoon sergeant who was driving, not the smartest task organization, would have us both in the, the Humvee. I decided to pick a route. It was You could have called it a coin flip, but it was still my decision on which route to take. There had been... Um, a few ambushes on both routes. So I looked at the one that was not ambushed uh, recently, picked that. And as we drove down, uh, we get blown up. I can't remember what type of munition was in the light pole. Um, some type of artillery round, I believe, maybe, maybe even more than one. Blasts the doors off of our little soft skin Humvee, you know, knocks your head around a little bit. Um, but this is where I started to see the beauty of battle drills and small unit leadership kick in. Um, as we the vehicle stop. Uh, we come out and begin securing the area. And once again, it was Sergeant Sean Dodier and then Burns in the back did at the time what is now probably referred to as five and 25s and start moving out to secure the area. We get notified of a casualty uh, in one of the LMTVs. I didn't know at the time that Shaw and a few a handful of other soldiers had received shrapnel as well. Um, and I didn't know that because they were just continuing to move out the perimeter. But on that day, um, Specialist uh, Brett Christian, uh, Sergeant Brett Christian, was killed uh, in that IED. The tricky part was he was not organically one of my soldiers. He was in support platoon, um, but you know, Brett was killed um, so uh, the other platoon sergeant that was with us got him evac'd, uh, but he was he was dead uh, when the blast uh, as soon as the blast hit him. So after the the dust starts to settle, um, we realize that a soldier has been killed. Um, you, you go through a lot of questioning, and what seems like about an hour in your head really is about 30 seconds as you question the decisions you made, and then you really quickly realize that it doesn't matter at the time. Control what you can control, and then keep the area secure. We were unable to find a trigger puller or anybody that uh, may have been re responsible for the blast, but you started to see a, a very quick shift in the mentality of the platoon of all the soldiers once one of our own has been killed. That shift, you've mentioned your platoon sergeant, you've mentioned having these strong squad leaders. How did you as a leadership group mitigate that or influence it? I recall... The way that we did that is not changed now as I fast forward to 2023. Um, there was small um, psychological teams that came to check a few days later. Um, before that occurred, uh, Sergeant Barrel and I definitely make sure we talked to the platoon after we got back to the, the company out, the cop uh, in the hotel. And as long as you're communicating about it and making sure that it doesn't mean that everybody within this country is the one that killed one of your fellow comrades, I think you're moving in the right direction. And we tried to use it as just a way to keep us more hypervigilant because it just gets boring. Um, that, and so whenever we would get the lulls, <clears throat> we could use Brett as a reminder of what can happen as you were complacent. We weren't complacent when he was killed. We were executing our mission, but it just happens. You can't control it. And it's a reminder that there's just there, – there is no – Brett served as a constant reminder that things will just happen. And it may not be the fault of anybody. It's just war or it's just combat. You talked about using Brett as a reminder to your soldiers of both the chance that happens in combat operations, but also of the need to be kind hosts or kind guests in the nation of Iraq and also be vigilant on patrol. How did the unit memorialize Brett going forward outside of your platoon? Uh, in the near term, you know, so immediately following um, our the loss of Brett, you obviously do your memorials. Um, 
with the unit in, in country. Um, and I first started to realize that Brett's connection, he was actually in 11 Bravo in the, the distribution platoon. Brett had a lot of friends within the battalion. And that was one thing that made me realize how many, um, how many people outside of your organization, a single fallen soldier can, can impact. Fast forward um, a little bit, you know, we, once we redeployed, I actually became the distro platoon, excuse me, distro is the new term, the support platoon leader at the time under the old MTO. And now I am the platoon leader of the troops that were with Brett in Iraq when he was killed. And it was unique because I didn't realize that how long a casualty's memory can be honored until I was looking at these soldiers who looked at me and said, hey, weren't you the guy in charge of the patrol when Brett was killed? And I said, yes, I was. We were able to connect. And if you keep it as a positive thing, we shared stories about Brett and then how he has continued to stick in my mind ever since we lost him. And then when it really, when the idea of honoring our fallen really hit home was we uh, had large division, you know, memorial for all the fallen soldiers from that first deployment. And I meet Brett's mother who actually was from, and so was Brett, um, the, uh, a town in Ohio just right down the street from mine called North Ridgeville, grown up around that town. So she and I made this immediate connection. And you just do some things that you're not, you don't know if they're ever going to have a purpose, but you do them. And what I mean by that is uh, at the time we didn't, I think we got maybe got a couple digital cameras, but you had those old um, 35 millimeter cameras. And when we secured the perimeter of Brett's IED site, I was didn't know what other things I'd have to gather it intel and I snapped a few photos, not of him, but just of the, of the site. And so as I was talking to Brett's mom, um, she wanted to know what happened to him, physically on the ground, what she just to help her have closure. And I told her all that and I said, you may be interested in this. And uh, I hesitated, but I had those photos in the platoon CP and I handed her that and she first melted um, and then was so thankful that I was able to show her um, where her son gave his life for her, for the country. And I was just thankful that I was able to give her that piece. Would have never thought about it at the time. I'm not recommending that as a technique, but being able to have that conversation, things just can lead to helping a family member grieve for that fallen soldier. After July 23rd, what happened in Mosul? So after July 23rd, the um, continued focus of counterinsurgency continues to pick up. Enemy contact slightly increased but the one benefit we had was was mass i mean there was enough i think there was enough troopers to secure the area and keep things relatively secure there was one more incident that that set the tone later on before we ended up moving out of the hotel out of the city and into the establishment of fobs we were in fobs for the last few months of that deployment told you that the platoons were on a rotation of security uh, training and, and patrols and then we established a QRF platoon, specifically aerial QRF platoons um, that rotated throughout the, the brigade, at least I know through the brigade. And I think that started because uh, my timeline might be off, but right across from the hotel, we were not part of it. Um, it was a uh, memory serves and right first brigade um, when we killed Uday and Kuse, uh, Saddam's sons. That was, you know, we were able to observe the entire fight um, from, from the top of a hotel, but our battalion wasn't involved with it. And then the act enemy activity seemed to pick up a little bit more. So hence the aerial QRFs because there's contact across the area. One of our ground patrols, not from my platoon, uh, makes contact and we get the call to move out. Um, direct fire contact. As we're driving um, in the back of a Humvee, uh, my RTO at the time, Matt Clark, uh, just like out of a movie, yells, Black Hawk down, Black Hawk down, Black Hawk down. 
and I, I look at him, I say, say again. And as soon as I looked at him, I also noticed an orange glow uh, across the city a little bit. And he's getting it over his hand mic in his ear. He says, sir, I'm being told there's a Black Hawk down. We move first to the platoon um, that was in contact. They think they may have received a casualty, um, but he was he was not... Uh, he was wounded in action. And then they point down the road, maybe 100 meters. This is at nighttime. Um, nods are down. And I see this, what was ended up being the second UH-60. So two UH-60s had collided and crashed in the city. They collided because uh, our sister platoon, who was in contact, um, small arms contact, had called for QRF. So one aircraft was aerial QRF. The other aircraft was full of artillerymen um, that were actually coming back from uh, a small R&R weekend. I think it was in, might have been in Qatar as we started to just try to rotate troops. Airspace was not synchronized, and those two UH-60s collided. One was catastrophic. The one we were getting ready to move to was not. Um, there were survivors. So we moved towards this flaming aircraft um, on top of a Iraqi house in Missoula, and I meet up with my brother, platoon leader, who came about halfway through the deployment, um, Spiro. He's a Greek guy. Called him the Greeky. And I run into Spiro, who was down there with his platoon that was in contact, but they had moved a squad over to this downed aircraft. And I look to the left of Spiro, and there's an aviator with some blood on him from the from Black Hawk, and he's just staring at the at the ground. And I, Spiro, what is what is going on? He goes, I got this pilot, got him out. There's still more in there, and there's just a UH-60 blade hanging in the street um, from that aircraft on those top of those um, really compact. Iraqi homes, and you can hear the rubble falling from the, the building. And I look at him, and I said, we can't go back in there. That thing's about to collapse. And he goes, well, you don't have to, but I am. And the the personal courage that Spiro had was something that sticks with me to this day, and it also shows you just about what, what a leader can do and motivate others. Because as soon as he said that, I said, well, he's right. I'm falling right behind him. We get to the, to the top of the UH-60, if you will. We get up to where it is sitting on top of the building. And we move about a squad's worth of troops. I think the first arm may have been with us at the time too, to this smoldering Blackhawk. And you really learn that there's always another opportunity. And the reason I say that is because there was groans coming from inside of that. And so ingenuity, the American fighting man starts to police up every uh, vehicle jack from the Humvees. I don't even know whose idea that was. And we move about two, uh, maybe even three, you know, vehicle jacks that use to change a tire, and we start cranking this, trying to make this aircraft open up. Uh, meanwhile, again, you're still listening to the building falling apart. And we pulled out a, uh, every time we got air to him, unfortunately, the flames would pick up. There's a burning soldier from the artillery unit in there. Got him out, still alive. Um, and he, he is, I don't remember his name, but he's still alive to this day. And uh, very, very badly burned. Um, but they got him out and treated. And if it wasn't for you know, Spiro not giving a crap about his, himself as well as the other troops that followed him in there, and if it wasn't for some ingenuity and people that weren't quitting, it, he would have continued to burn alive in there. Dan, you talked earlier, you know, as you're getting ready to do this air assault, about smiling when it sucked. The tour comes to an end. How does it end for you? Yeah, we actually had uh, a great way to wrap it up uh, that just came to us. Um, I transferred i was transferred to um at the time called an at platoon anti-tank now they're called heavy weapons platoons heavy weapons companies um just before christmas and as we got ready to redeploy after 12 months um it was you know tensions were high and there always are towards the end of the deployment everybody's um smelling the barn so to speak so it's an extra layer of um tension as you get ready to redeploy but our platoon uh, was first platoon delta company 2502 get pulled into the company commander matt bunch uh 
pulls us in and gives us a quick overview of the mission. And he says, uh, Stu, your platoon's going to be the Rat Patrol, the Rat Platoon. I had no idea. Like the 1980s television show. Had no idea that's what it meant. I My mind was reconnaissance anti-tank uh, was what I thought RAT stood for. But yes, uh, that, that was a historical reference that young Lieutenant Stewie missed. So what that meant was we had to redeploy the entire battalion's wheels, so all of our, all of our vehicles, um, and they were only getting from Mosul down to Kuwait by the roads. So the RAT platoon would be a few kilometers, typically out of FM radio range. We'd have to, um, we scheduled a few um, deliberate security halts to make sure we had FM comms. But bottom line, we were out in front of the whole battalion road march um, from Missoula down to Kuwait. I, I, memory serves me right, roughly a thousand kilometers uh, over a few days. But the real tension came from, um, you know, we'd been in uh, Iraq for a year at this point, uh, 12 months. IEDs had started to become a very real thing. So I vividly remember, um, you know, stuffing all of our gear, doing a cheeks to seats analysis of who'd sit where, and you know, we got four gun trucks, one one Humvee, and the platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class, uh, Terrence O'Shea, an awesome, awesome platoon sergeant, NCO. Like, all right, we'll ride together in the high back because the gun trucks have the other NCOs and, and gunners and, and junior enlisted soldiers. The trucks at this time, are they still soft-skinned, or had you been doing kind of hillbilly armor? Very little hillbilly armor, and, and uh, I don't think ours had any because the hillbilly armor went more towards um, troop transport, um, and they had the real light, thin metal door, so it really couldn't even probably stop um, anything above a 9 millimeter round. Um, so yeah, thin, you know, light-skinned vehicles. I can't remember our first stop, but the second stop, we, we show up into Baghdad, we get an intel brief. Um, hey, you guys need to leave, your platoon needs to leave at about 3 in the morning because here's the current threat analysis of... Um, peak IED times. And this was the first time since really the invasion we'd seen U.S. armored vehicles. Um, we were back in Bradley and, and tank country, if you will. I think it was 4th ID. And uh, they said, hey, we just had a catastrophic IED on a Bradley. You know, you look at it and you see just all of that U.S. armor destroyed, and you could see the you could see the platoon uh, that had the NCOs in there in that brief, and you could see them kind of get a little bit more tense, like, so close. Let's let's not have this happen again. Um, let's not let's not have that happen to us. Excuse me. So we we depart. It was cold. It was even raining. I think, um, which was always interesting. In Iraq to have some rain. Um, we get ready to depart about three in the morning. Tired as hell. Got our instant coffee and water mixed up in there. Um, throwing a pinch of Copenhagen and let's SP. And as we we start moving out of Baghdad. Uh, I noticed my platoon sergeant and myself as well, pretty sleepy. Um, and you know, you always laugh about how you even get tired when you're that amped up. But he's starting to sleep. I'm trying to keep him awake. And it hits me right there. I was like, look at what I did again. Back in a Humvee with my platoon sergeant, just like happened when we lost Brett Christian. I was like, I, I screwed this up. I put us back in this, you know, you start playing those superstition things. I, I start to mentally lock up a little bit. I can't get myself out of it because I can't, I can't stop the patrol speed of security at this time. We got to keep moving, stay ahead of the battalion column. Um, and my platoon starts falling asleep, swerving on the road a little bit. Well, you know, we put our high back in between the two gun trucks, so a total of five vehicles in that patrol. Behind me, Staff Sergeant Brewster, our platoon, uh, excuse me, section sergeant. Brewster um, calls me up on the net. Hey, eight one six is one four, and I'm starting to get static FM comms from the command post that we just left. So we're getting ready to go in just an area where we won't be able to talk to anybody other than the Blue Force tracker at the time on message. You know, one six, uh, this is one six. Go ahead. He goes, Hey, this is one four. Just Sir, checking. You got your your SGLI, your life insurance up to date, and I stop and I immediately go. He must have been still with an FM comms. He got an update. Something's about that. I said one four this one six. Uh, why? What's up? Did you just get an intel update? Is uh, are we into 
something different that we got before we departed? He comes back and goes, no, no, sir. I just wanted to make sure it was up to date because if your platoon sergeant can't stay awake, he's going to run you off the road and kill you. And I look and lock eyes with O'Shea and, and like we just kind of stare at each other for a second. And there's this laughter and smiles across the FM net as everybody starts giving one seven uh, a load of shit for, for being the sleepy platoon sergeant. And I'm sitting there smiling. And then my brain comes back to work. And I remember speed is security. And we just got to keep moving. We drive into the sunrise, find ourselves in Kuwait, and ended that, ended that tour remembering that you know, if you do just smile a little when it sucks, you gain some mental clarity, stick to your decisions, and you don't know what's going to happen, but you've probably done all the right things if you're a good leader to make it happen the best that you can, and that's the best that you can control. And that's what matters. Well, I think that's a great way to to sum it up, right? Smile when it sucks. Dan, thanks for being on the spear. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.